It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 866 for the 26th of January, 2024. This week, anyone who has digital photos that are more than a decade old could improve their quality substantially with an application that uses artificial intelligence to fill in details that don't exist in the originals. In short circuits, speaking of AI, if you're trying to keep up with what's new, you might suspect that it's difficult and maybe even impossible. Anything written more than a day or two ago is probably already outdated. Have you ever needed to use a second computer near your primary computer, only to find that making space for a second mouse and keyboard cramps your style? Multiplicity might be just what you need. Anyone who has been using a digital camera for 15 years or more might have some photos that don't have the quality needed for large prints. Even the old Sony Mavica that wrote small, highly compressed images to floppy disks had enough pixels for snapshot-size prints. Barely. Individual images were usually around 50 kilobytes and just 640 pixels by 480. Today, smartphone cameras create 20 to 50 megapixel images, and that is enough pixels to create large wall size prints. If you have some old images that you'd like to print large and hang on the wall, there is hope with upsampling processes that are powered by artificial intelligence. Better still, the one I'll tell you about today is free. But before we get to that, it's important to understand some history and some terminology. In the early days, we had a choice of saving files in JPEG format or JPEG format. Only a few professional cameras offered anything like RAW. There was an option for size. Many cameras offered small, medium, and large. Some also included settings for quality, such as standard, medium, and high. An image saved as small, standard quality would be fine for sending by email and looked okay on screens of the day. That would be the format that would save the largest number of images to whatever storage media the camera used. The primary considerations for JPEG images is that they are processed in the camera using the camera manufacturer's optimization process for brightness, contrast, color, saturation, and sharpness. The process then discards up to 90% of the data that was captured by the camera's sensor, this size reduction is accomplished without any visible degradation, at least until the user wants to make some changes to brightness, contrast, color, saturation, or sharpness. It's then that it becomes apparent that essential information has been discarded and cannot be recovered. Raw image files include all of the data that the camera's sensor captured. The files are much larger than JPEG images, and they're usually bland when you look at them because no processing has been performed. It's just the raw data from the sensor. Raw images have to be processed before they can be used. That's one reason some photographers choose JPEG. They're willing to sacrifice the ability to improve images in favor of having bright, vibrant images without having to master a photo editing program. 
In the late 1990s, Sony released several digital Mavica, FD Mavica, and CD Mavica cameras. The earliest of these digital models recorded onto 3.5-inch, 1.4-megabyte floppy disks. Sony loaned me one of those cameras around 1998, and they were popular in North America. Later Mavica cameras recorded images on memory stick and eventually on 3-inch CD-ROMs. The Mavica camera I used for a few weeks created images that measured 640 by 480 pixels. They were highly compressed. That means an enormous amount of data was lost. The camera could also create images that were 1024 by 768 pixels. They were also very highly compressed. If you have any photos from a Mavica camera, upsampling is unlikely to create a file that can be used for a good wall size print. But it can be improved. After I returned the Mavica to Sony, I bought an Olympus C2000. It saved images that were astoundingly large, 1600 by 1200 pixels. Wow, that was large enough for a 10 by 8 inch print. The files were still JPEG though. At the time, digital camera manufacturers were looking for ways to produce affordable cameras that could create one megapixel images. Those of us who attended InfoTrends in New York City in 2001 cheered that news because they were getting close. Around 2003, I bought a Nikon D100 camera that could create raw images, but I used JPEG most of the time to save disk space. I did use the largest JPEG images, though, 3,008 by 2,000 pixels. That seemed enormous at the time. Today, I use a Canon D80, which takes 6,000 by 4,000 pixel images, a Sony RX1000 with just slightly lower resolution, 5,472 by 3,648. Or, most frequently, I use my Google Pixel smartphone. There, I have a choice of images 8,160 pixels by 4,590, or I can use the smaller 4,032 by 2,268. And yes, these days, a smartphone really can capture a 50-megapixel image, 8,160 by 4,590 pixel dimensions. All this with a sensor that's smaller than my little finger's fingernail. And that brings us to pixels. How many do you need? You may notice I haven't mentioned DPI. I haven't because DPI is unimportant. Pixels is pixels. Nothing matters but pixels. Nothing. Forget about any DPI associated with a digital image. Forget any linear dimensions associated with a digital image. DPI is a factor only for the printer. Most printers, whether connected to your computer or in a shop where cyan, magenta, yellow, and black inks are used, will probably be fine with 300 dpi. It's certainly sufficient for color laser printers and most inkjet printers. The question is how many dpi will you have to work with? So let's assume we have an image that's 739 by 416 pixels, and it needs to be printed 6.5 inches by 3.64 inches. So we take the long side of the image, that's 739 pixels, and the size that the image will be printed, that's 6.5 inches. We don't have to bother with the short side. 
739 pixels divided by 6.5 inches equals 114 pixels per inch. If we need 300 pixels per inch, the image needs to be upsampled. Note that we are not changing the resolution. We are just adding interpolated pixels where there aren't any. And that brings me to upscale with a Y. Several online image upscalers exist, but Upscale with a Y offers both downloadable applications that works on Windows, Mac OS, and Linux computers, but also an online service that works with any operating system. Upscale, and you'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website, checks a lot of boxes that I like. Free and open source are just two. It also works quite well. If some of the old photos are of sufficient quality for snapshot size prints, why might someone want to upsample them? Well, there are several reasons, and these include the desire to create a wall size print, or to include the photograph in a professionally produced book or magazine, or to create a print from a cropped image. So one of the first decisions to make is whether the image can be successfully upsampled. Any image can be upsampled, but not all can be upsampled successfully. The old Sony Mavica images from floppy disks, for example, you're not going to have much success with those. Because the disks held only 1.2 megabytes of data, Sony opted for very small images by default, 640 by 480 pixels, and to apply extreme compression that eliminated much of the already minimal details and created artifacts that make objects in the photo seem to shimmer. Most Mavica images are less than 50 kilobytes. Not much can be done to create a usable image, but AI does improve the situation. The Mavica did have a high quality mode that saved images in bitmap format or BMP. These images were still just 640 by 480, but there was no compression. Only one photo could be saved on a disk. Upscale isn't compatible with BMP files, so you need to save Mavica images in another format. Ping or PNG is a good choice. No compression is involved in Ping files. After running the image through Upscale, the result is a 2560 by 1920 pixel image that is surprisingly good. Good enough to be imported into Lightroom Classic or Photoshop and edited. Better results will come from images that are somewhat larger. Those cameras made after 2001 that created JPEG images 1600 by 1200 pixels and that were used to capture the highest quality JPEG images will usually create exceptional upsampled images. I found a photo I'd taken in 2000 using the Olympus camera I mentioned. It was of a mural near Columbus College of Art and Design. At 1600 by 1200 pixels, the file would have made an excellent snapshot print but would have looked a bit soft if enlarged to a 10 by 8 print. And it would have been even softer for wall prints, but yeah, there is an exception here. Because prints on walls are viewed from further away than we view snapshot images, which we typically hold in our hands and have close to our face, it's possible to get away with lower resolution. Earlier I mentioned 300 dots per inch, DPI, whatever you want to call it. It's a good choice for prints. It's a lot more complicated than that. Maybe you've seen giant billboards with text and images that appear sharp and clear. But if you get closer to them, you'll see that your eyes are lying to you. The actual printed resolution of these billboards is often just a few pixels, maybe just 10. 
not 300. Viewing distance allows your eyes to fill in details that really aren't there. But still, for most common purposes, 300 dpi dots per inch is a good target for printed materials. And it's all about the distribution of pixels from the original image, not about any useless dpi value that's stored somewhere in the image. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, this is an exciting time to be involved in the development of computer software, but it's also a time when we may reasonably fluctuate from excitement to despair. At least 30 years ago, some pundits said the rate of change has exceeded the rate of progress. I don't remember who said that, and I did actually try to find out, but whatever he said back then was premature. In less than a year, artificial intelligence has advanced from the Model T era, left moon landings and near-space exploration in the dust, and has reached the equivalent of everyday hyperspace travel. Drink some beer, keep a towel handy, and don't panic. Consider something mundane. Cameras. Cameras used to be big, bulky things, and photographers needed to understand film speed or sensitivity, f-stops and shutter speed, depth of field, reciprocity if they were making long exposures, dynamic range, focal length, and a lot of other topics that are increasingly becoming arcane. Single-lens reflex cameras are still being manufactured, and professional photographers still need them. But a simple camera in a smartphone is sufficient for most people, and by simple, I mean an incredibly complex combination of hardware and software. Today's cameras are at least as much dependent on software as they are on hardware. Recently, I took a picture of Holly Cat using my smartphone. She had a cold, and the corner of her right eye near her nose had some gunk in it. Gunk is a technical medical term, of course. So I pulled up the edit mode on the phone, not in Photoshop, Used my finger on the phone's screen to draw a little circle around the gunk, and the gunk disappeared. If I had used a digital SLR, I would have selected a wide-open aperture, small number, large opening, to throw the background out of focus. So I was then able to select an option to blur the background on the phone. And the result was an image that matched the quality of anything I could have achieved with a real camera. I looked back to 1998, 26 years ago if you're not counting. Sony had loaned me a Mavica camera that I mentioned a little while ago. It stored those tiny, highly compressed images on a 1.2 megabyte floppy disk. I could save about 24 images per disk, but there was also a high quality mode that saved one image per disk. I have one of those photos, and recently I upsampled the image to be more like one that would be captured today. The image was captured in a mixed lighting situation, so the color balance was questionable. 
check it out on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Some of the pixels on the highlighted side were blown out, and after I got the shadow exposure under control, I added a bit of grain in Lightroom Classic. With the color balance corrected for the shadow area, highlights became green. That's essentially state-of-the-art for 1998. So I grabbed the smartphone that was lying on the table, switched it to selfie mode, and created an image that, although captured in a mixed lighting situation, still got the colors right. 26 years later, there is a distinct lack of hair on my head, and the rest of the image is equally different from the earlier photo. Today's cameras, hardware, and software are orders of magnitude better than anything we had in 1998. Photoshop's ability to create parts of a still image that weren't present when the scene was captured are nothing short of amazing, and this technology will be coming to video tools in the near future, maybe even this year. AI is already being used to repair and colorize films. One example from 2022 shows scenes around New York City in the early 1900s, I'm guessing probably about 1910. Check out the video on the TechBiter Worldwide website and note the flickering colors as AI from two years ago tries to keep up with people who are moving and with cameras that are mounted on moving vehicles. The old film includes the Hippodrome, which stood from 1905 to 1939, and scenes from when trains ran on the Brooklyn Bridge. The process had improved substantially by 2023, as a film from 1927 shows. Fritz Lang's 1927 silent black-and-white film Metropolis invented groundbreaking film techniques to depict a dystopian society in Weimar, Germany. Metropolis originally ran more than two and a half hours, but several edited versions have been released. Moonflix, and you'll find a link to Moonflix, has colorized many old motion pictures and recently released an improved and colorized copy of Metropolis that runs slightly less than two and a half hours. Moonflix has restored several old motion pictures, some from as early as the 1880s. The restored videos are free to watch, but registration is required and donations are encouraged. The advances in AI's capabilities are clear. What is also clear is that this is just the beginning. The changes that have occurred in just the past two years exceeded AI's developments in the previous two decades. And yes, work had started on AI for speech and text recognition a long time ago. Telephone system automated attendance could handle basic functions as early as 2000. But the change is accelerating and even the rate of acceleration seems to be accelerating. Where we'll be a year from now, or even a month from now, is unclear. What do you do when space is limited and you need occasionally to use a mouse that's attached to one computer with another? Well, there's the traditional option, there's a component in Microsoft Power Toys, and there's multiplicity from Stardock. The traditional option is what's commonly used when somebody needs to operate two computers that may or may not be located on the same desk. My office has a Windows 11 notebook computer and, directly behind it, a nearly antique MacBook Pro. By antique, I mean it's nine years old. I use the Windows computer, except for those times when I need to test something on a Mac. 
The keyboard and mouse are connected to an I.O. Gear USB device that can route connections to either computer. Either of the two monitors on the desk has four inputs, so switching between the computers involves selecting the proper port on both monitors and tapping a toggle switch to direct the mouse and keyboard to the appropriate computer. Before monitors offered multiple inputs, people who needed this functionality used KVM switches. Those had connections for keyboard, video, and mouse. But there's another situation when it would be nice to be able to use the mouse and keyboard from the desktop system on a Surface Pro tablet computer. Occasionally, I need a second computer, so I put the tablet on the desk beside the monitors. This was far from ideal because I had to turn to the computer, use the small attached keyboard, and either the trackpad or a separate mouse, and there's not much space on my desk. When Microsoft added Mouse Without Borders to Power Toys, the ability to use the mouse on both computers was very helpful. Granted, just the mouse, but that's all I needed most of the time. Then I licensed Stardock's Object Desktop so I could use several of the components in that package. There's an extra component, though, one that I hadn't noticed. Multiplicity lets me use the mouse and the keyboard from the main computer on the Surface Pro tablet without having to push any buttons. In fact, it would allow me to use the mouse and keyboard on the main computer and up to eight other computers if... I had eight other computers. The thought of nine computers arranged around each other is simply mind-boggling. Both Mouse Without Borders and Multiplicity give the computer a security key, and both have settings that control when the mouse is operational on each computer. Multiplicity adds the keyboard, and you might expect to need to toggle the active computer with a hotkey of some sort. That's not the case. When the user moves the mouse off the main computer screen using what Stardock calls seamless control, the keyboard follows. In other words, the keyboard is operational on whichever screen the mouse cursor is on. And better still, items placed on the clipboard on one computer can be pasted into a document on the other computer. The use cases for an application such as Multiplicity are somewhat rare, but when you need this functionality, it is a great addition to your toolkit. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. Thank you.